Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We made this. Thank you very much for joining me for the latest of our special Fight the Future Minute podcasts. Minute 33 of the film, The X-Files Fight the Future. We're going through it minute by minute, as you know. Still got a long way to go, but we're getting there. Because today we begin at 32 minutes as we hear a knock at Agent Scully's door. And we end on 32 minutes, 59 seconds as we watch helicopters approaching the cover-up site in North Texas. And to discuss this minute, I'm joined once again by Caradwen Foley. Hello, Caradwen. Hello, Carl. I think it's entertaining that you characterize that as just a knock at her door, because really it's a series of increasingly assertive pounds. <laughs> yeah, I think the closed captioning has it as loud banging, um, interestingly. And you're right, it's, this is a minute that's very much about uh, the two main characters, isn't it? Mulder and Scully together, talking. So you're a shipper, Caradwen White. Is that how you would characterize yourself? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think that I feel conflicted with the way that different of the of the labels kind of get yeah. used. I, I don't think that that's kind of my primary investment in the series. But I, I think it's like very obvious that these two people are each other's people and the only the only people who could ever, you know, uh, understand them fully and, yeah. and sort of make sense with them and to them. Um, so I, I guess in that respect, I, I, I think that they're relationship of whatever kind is part of what makes the show work and that it wouldn't work if you didn't have the um the chemistry between the performance performers that you have um but i'm sort of agnostic about like what it what what form that relationship takes yeah no that sounds that sounds good i think that sounds um similar to me i mean i would also not adopt the label ship necessarily but i think i agree with everything you just said Okay, so this minute, yeah, it begins with the pounding on the door. And I think, again, on one of the commentary tracks, Carter talks about, Chris Carter talks about the importance of Scully's door or Scully's apartment to the series because, you know, a lot of significant things have happened there, you know, during the course of the show. Melissa's death, you know, confrontations with Tombs, uh, Dwayne Barry, all sorts, isn't it? So it's, um, it's a significant locale, I think, for the series. Yeah, and it, it's sort of a shame that you get the sense that she would really like it to be kind of a haven and a place to withdraw to. I mean, yep. it's it's full of like a big, comfy, soft couch and like a you yeah. know beautiful kind of well textiled bed and things like that. And all these like she's got a lot of art on the walls. I mean, there are a lot of really like there are a lot of touches that make it feel a lot homier than say Mulder's apartment, which seems like an auxiliary office that he also sleeps in. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, she never really gets to enjoy it as, as that because she's always got like liver eating mutants breaking in and family members being assassinated and things like that. And I suppose that in this sort of interruption of domestic life continues all the way through the series, isn't it? Into the revival episodes like this, where they're uh, caught at home by the, the three people who come in and followers, for instance. Yeah. Followers. You got to think she really brought it on herself though. I mean, what was that's, I have a lot of problems with that episode for other reasons, but that's another podcast. Uh, so what struck you about this minute then? So most of it is given over to the exchange between the two of them. And it's surprisingly, in the way I remembered this scene, it took longer to play out. I was surprised that we got the whole exchange within the one minute, you know. But what did you make of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that's really striking to me about the scene is something that I think I've heard Clara Cook talk about on the X-Cast before, which is how profound Mulder's lack of boundaries is. Mm. Um, and that's something that I don't, I didn't really fully appreciate about this show until the last few years. As a kid, you know, I definitely got that this scene is making it out to be, this is a socially unacceptable thing yeah. that Mulder is doing, turning up to his coworkers apartment at three o'clock in the morning drunk. And the scene itself like plays that up a bit, mm-hmm. but the absolute bizarreness of it, didn't really register for me. I think when I was younger now, you know, I'm an adult who has had many coworkers who have become close friends. I have never once had one of them like roll up to my door drunk in the middle of the night and just pound on it until I left <laughs> it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it's, it's easy in the course of the show to sort of like get lulled into, you know, the expectation like, Oh, this is the dynamic between these two people. I mean, even in the pilot, you know, he's calling her, in the middle of yep. the night that, that this is actually kind of a nice reflection of that because that's another night where she's like up kind of churning stuff mm-hmm. over um, and gets an unexpected interruption from Mulder. But here we and Scully both, you know, this is par for the course. You can see when she opens the door that she knows exactly what to expect. Like she doesn't creep up to it with her gun in her hand, like trying to figure out who is, yeah. you know, interrupting her. She knows exactly who's there. She just drags herself up and like tiredly lets him yeah. in. Well, even the fact that Mulder, like you said, lack of boundaries, like when, when she says she wasn't asleep, he's like, why not? He expected <laughs> to be waking her up, you know, he didn't think care. Um, one of the things that I heard, I think Spotnitz was talking about this, on again, on the commentary, he talks about the relative innocence of the characters at this point in the X-Files uh, timeline. And I can see what he means in some senses. Like, at this point, we're kind of... This is pre-Mulder's abduction, it's pre-William, it's pre-them going on the run, etc., etc., etc. But on the other hand, they've already gone through a lot of this stage, haven't they? Scully's abduction, the cancer arc, and so on and so forth. So what do you, do you get that from this scene? Do you get the sense of relative innocence he seems to be talking about? I mean, you've, you've done a rewatch recently, haven't you? Some of the early seasons. Like, how would you compare this to, like, season one, two, Mulder, their relationship, for instance? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, that's something that actually has been very much on my mind with rewatching recently, because I am right now procrastinating about watching Dwayne Barry, which is the next episode I have. And the reason I've been pro- procrastinating about even I love that episode and I love that arc, but, you know, rewatching Little Green Men and The Host and Sleepless... Like there's a real innocence and kind of naivete and tenderness to their experiences and interactions there because they haven't just had the life totally crushed out of them yet. <laughs> yeah. And there's still a lot of there are still a lot of opportunities for those kinds of interactions later on and, and these two characters do still find a lot of things to yep. 
find joy about, but you know, it's impossible to overstate the effect that the abduction arc has on both of their lives. I mean, you don't, you don't have this sense of despair that settled over them yet at that point. There's a lot of like fear and a lot of mystery, but, but there's still a lot of like, um, kind of hope and expectation that I think is replaced by this sense of something very, very sinister has happened. And we don't even fully understand it. And so, so many of the next few seasons is taken up trying to understand it. So I think by this point, I get what um, Spotness is saying in that there is still lots more mm-hmm. of that to go. But, you know, it's it's a little bit in, in comparison with seasons one and two, um, a lot of the cat is out of the bag yeah. already. So it's it's a bit... Yeah. And it's like we say, it's quite a brisk exchange, really. And I suppose as long term viewers, you know, we're accustomed to the fact that Mulder's very persuasive when he's onto something. We've seen many an occasion where Mulder calls Scully up or she comes into work one day expecting one kind of day and things just go off in some weird direction. Um, So in some ways, perhaps it doesn't have to be anything other than a very brisk scene, you know, and then away we go with the next stage of the adventure. I mean, do we do we miss anything here? Because like we like in the previous minute, we said we get the opportunity to see Mulder, you know, think about this and decide to follow up on what Kurtzwell's saying. Did we need to see a similar thing from Scully or not? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I do think so much of the series is situated in having Scully be the audience proxy and her sense of, okay, I have been asked to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. It's sort of, it sort of mirrors our sense of like being pulled along Mm -hmm. in the story as opposed to being able to be an active, you know, decision maker in what happens next. So, I mean, from the moment when she hears him knocking at her door, you know that she's going to go along with it. Um, from the moment he says Georgetown in the taxi cab, you know that he's going to go, that she's going to go along with it. One thing that I think is, I don't know, it's a moment that I really struggle to unpack a little bit is, when Mulder asks Scully what she's implying when she says was, you know, you were drunk until 20 minutes ago. Was that before or after you decided to come here? And they gloss over it really mm-hmm. quickly. Mulder pivots to just trying to get her to get her to come with him. And what surprises me about that scene is that I feel like we've seen versions of this conversation play out between them before that are really like heavy handed in the innuendo, yep. like Mulder immediately kind of goes into that you know, into that kind of register, but he doesn't really do that here. And it's kind of surprising to me. I, I mean, he has like a, he's a little smile, but it's not mm-hmm. a smug or, you know, suggestive one. It's just kind of like, it's almost childlike. Yeah. And I don't really sense like coyness in that interaction. So I don't quite know what it is we're seeing happen there. It's almost like he's genuinely surprised by her confronting <laughs> yeah. that. And just like kind of doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so what other exchanges did you have in mind then when you said we may have seen something akin to this before? I mean, I, I was thinking more of like the kind of overtly yeah. um, innuendo laden or, you know, flirtatious things like mm-hmm. the, um, I just listened to the X-Cast episode about, about Chinga. And so when he asks her to marry him after she oh, rattles yeah. off yeah. the long list of, you know, paranormal yeah. activities or the demonstration of boyish agility tree climbing scene or things like that. Um, But this is like, it seems like he's surprised almost that she would be quest like imputing his motives. 
Um, so I, I don't quite know how to read that, but I, I think it's kind of an interesting moment. And when he pivots then to start asking her, get dressed, like get dressed, just, you know, come along, I'll explain in the car, get, just get dressed. He's persuasive in the way that a child is persuasive. He's not, you know, ordering her around and he's not even like using his usual, like, you know, I'm going to really like explain to you hard why this is important. He just very softly but repeatedly is asking her to do this thing in a way that like, you know, a, a kid tugging at your sleeve would ask you and he doesn't quite meet her eyes the first, you know, when we, when we see his face either. So he seems almost kind of embarrassed. Um, mm. So I don't quite know how to read that. What, what do you think? I never gave it much thought is the truth. Um, yeah. I don't know. Listeners, let us know what your take on that interaction is, I guess. Um, one thing we should touch on before we go though, is this next part of the scene. Uh, with the helicopters. And what I've learned from the, the Blu-ray is that moon isn't real. I never knew that. Nothing is real in that shot, apparently. The helicopters are computer-generated at first. Um, the moon is, isn't, you know, it's a synthetic moon. I don't know exactly how, how they did it. Wow. Um, it's extremely well done, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's fantastic. I had no idea that was the case. And, I, you know, having just rewatched it for this, I feel like a lot of the time, you know, mid to late 90s CG is pretty, you know, tr- transparent on its face. But... Yeah, I would not have picked up on that if you hadn't mentioned it. Yeah, considering how long ago this was, I think they did a really good job. Um, and this sequence apparently was shot in California City. Quite a bit of work entailed by the sounds of things. You know, they had to put the tents up, they had to put a lawn in, and all that kind of thing. But um, what do you think generally? Because I think Bowman talks at some at one point about missing the Vancouver crew on this film. Um, do you think this film misses the Vancouver locations at all? Or do you think they found... Um, you know, appropriate settings. I think they did. You know, I, I think given where the action of the of the film is supposed to take place, I mean, it would be hard to find a swath of Vancouver that looks like North Texas. So I think yeah. shooting in California for the purposes of this scene, for the purposes of the scenes with the kids, um, like the kids on bikes, um, you know, I, I think it I think it lends itself to that in a, in a nice way. Even the kind of federal building scenes. I mean, that's very explicitly meant to evoke Oklahoma City for us. And it would be a lot harder to find, I imagine, a location. I've not been to Vancouver, but I think it would be very hard to find a location in Vancouver that that like tripped our Oklahoma register um, as much as the locations that they used here. So I I think that the the settings, probably not. um, But I think that, you know, I, I can well see why filming something that's meant to be kind of the culmination of the first five years of a series that they're still shooting while they're shooting season five in Vancouver. Um, I can well imagine why it would be, it would be tough not to have, not to have that crew that understands the like visual language of the show so well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been through the trenches, you know, kind of thing as well. But anyway, he did say uh, happily that, you know, the LA crew were great to work with as well. So that was nice to hear. Um, All right. Caridwen. So I think that, wraps up our latest fight the future minute thanks for listening everybody at home and you'll be back with me carried one for minute 34 which is interesting because it's when the cigarette smoking man makes his first appearance isn't it mm-hmm. so yeah stay tuned everybody uh, and until our next minute remember as always trust no one previously on the we made this network here lies amicus this is the only time you actually get any sort of grounded history, you know, and a bit more of a background on why he's there. I mean, it's maybe five minutes. Hmm. Uh, if that. And then, and then, um, and then Dick's like, oh, I have to go. And you're like, where do you have to go, Dick? Yeah. 
Science got a science. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. He's got to go sciencing. Uh, and, and then the grandfather says to Pat, "Oh, I don't, I don't think you should see that young man again because the devil comes in many forms." And and you're like, "Okay, how can he tell? He can't even see him." Observing the pattern, a fringe podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're getting to the uh, dropping the idea of multiple universes, the possibility of traveling from one to another. Uh, which beings that are more advanced, like us, but more advanced, yeah, like in a further point of the timeline. So, um, so definitely seeds of things we see later. Yeah, uh, like we were saying earlier on, it, it is dropping ideas that are going to come you know, come in fully over the next what five or ten episodes. The giddy carousel of pop. So, if you look at that front cover, there is a very obvious choice of somebody who actually should have been the cover. The answer to that is Janet Jackson. The choice I had to make at the time, I suppose there were three choices, were Wayne Hussey from The Mission, Margaret Thatcher, which is a whole other ball of wax which we'll come to, and Janet Jackson. And the reason why this fails is because they used to announce the chart, I think, on a Tuesday morning. And my decision to put Wayne Hussey in the cover would have been all about a, a, a bet, if you like, that the mission would be higher in the chart than Janet Jackson. The magazine's gone to bed. It's at the printers. It's about to come out. And he's counting down the top 40, and the mission have gone in at, like, I don't know, number 32 or something. I mean, that's bad enough, but I'm now just thinking... We've just got to hope that Charlie Jackson hasn't gone in the chart because he's got the 20 and he hasn't mentioned it yet. 19 and at 18, 17. I thought, oh, please God, you know. And of course, in at number four is Janet Jackson. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.